Our sermon passage this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, starting in verse 35. Hear the word of the Lord. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand or on my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to him, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Holy Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word which does endure forever. I pray that you would stoke in us an imagination to hear, and not just to hear, but to take heart. And as we take heart, may these words transform our lives as your spirit works in us this morning by the power of your word. Do this work in us, we pray, and trust that you will do. In the name of Christ, amen. Amen. Well, in uh, 2011, after the, the Green Bay Packers won the Super Bowl, their, their quarterback, if you're not a sports analogy person, forgive me, it's really good. You know, the quarterback is the guy that has the, the, the ball and throws it to the other people, right? But the quarterback, Aaron Rodgers, uh, was sitting on the team bus after, after this winning, right? Holding the trophy that he had dreamed his whole life of holding in his hands, right? From probably the time that he was a little kid throwing the football in his backyard to, to now, he, his whole life was aimed at this moment, winning the Super Bowl, where he was the best player on the field, staying up late, late practicing, studying for this moment. And as he, as he was reflecting on this moment to a reporter, holding his dreams in his hand, this is what thought came to his mind. He asked, is this it? Is this, is this all there is to live for? As he held his dreams in his hands, his life's pursuit, he felt deflated. He was left wanting. Because the thing about trophies and any accomplishments we get is after you achieve them, after you win it, you have to get to work to win it again. Just ask our defending NCAA bracket champion, Susie Maxfield. Um, you know, wearing the crown is exhausting. Although she is in the lead again, I'm not happy about that. Um, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, that's okay. Every year we do an NCAA bracket challenge as a church. And uh, Susie Maxfield is apparently going to be a two-time champion. 
But, but it is exhausting. Uh, to, to, this, this pursuit of glory is exhausting because always is some, someone's always trying to take it from you, right? But in this, there is something innate in all of us that strives for greatness. You know, we were made for greatness. We were made for glory. Our, our problem is not that we seek it out. Our problem is, is where we seek it out, right? Our problem is our definition of greatness, right? We often settle for lesser glories. And I think what Jesus is showing us is what if greatness in God's kingdom isn't holding trophies and accomplishments in our hands? It, it isn't being the best at our jobs. What if it isn't being wealthy enough to have servants serve you? But what if greatness is, is, is found somewhere different? What if our quest is aimed wrongly? And this is the question that Jesus is teasing out this morning with his disciples, right? And this, this whole chapter, in some ways, is leading up to this encounter with Jesus and his disciples, from his statement about children becoming childlike, to his statement about what true wealth is, to his statement last week about he needs to die and rise. He's constantly showing us that the way of the kingdom is backwards to us in this world, urging us to put worldly pursuits, which leave us wanting aside, and to pick up kingdom pursuits, which fulfill your greatest desires. And this morning, he is actually showing us true greatness according to his kingdom and encouraging us to strive after it with all that we have. A greatness that lasts. A greatness that satisfies like no trophy on earth can. And so there's just simply two aspects of greatness that we're going to explore this morning. First, where greatness is not found. And secondly, where it is found. So first, greatness is, is not found on a throne. If you look back at verse uh, 35 here, it says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want for you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Right? So James and John, if you remember, they're part of the inner circle of Jesus. Right? They were with him at the transfiguration moment along with Peter. And if you remember from, from last week, really throughout the Gospel of Mark, one of the things that Jesus is drawing us towards is the idea that the disciples had a different vision for the Messiah than Jesus actually did, right? Uh, they still think they're headed to Jerusalem to recapture the city. And to be fair to them, Jesus does a lot of things that actually reinforce this idea for them, right? He's doing all these crazy miracles that they've never seen before, you know, calming storms, healing sick, casting out demons. And then they have this transfiguration moment where they see him full in his glory. They think that, okay, the Messiah has come. He's going to reign in his glory in Jerusalem. It's happening all that we've been waiting for, he's going to establish his kingdom with the sword, and, and they think they're going to rule with him. And so this is kind of what's going through their minds. And so as they're nearly in Jerusalem, you know, in a couple of weeks we're going to have a sermon where he's the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. They take this opportunity to pull Jesus aside and to ask him a question. Say, can we ask you a question? Jesus says, right, 36, what do you want me to do for you? And they respond in verse 37. And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. These two guys, as they're headed towards Jerusalem, they think they're going to take the city. They, hey, this, maybe the ten were a little, the other guys were a little bit far off. So they pulled Jesus and said, hey, let us sit by you in glory. You know, and this word glory can have connotations of heavenly glory, but not necessarily. And I think it's clear here in the context that they're not talking about heaven they're talking about earthly glory, earthly greatness. They're talking about the physical throne of David that they want Jesus to, to sit on in Jerusalem. And they want to sit by Jesus on that throne. And if you think about it for them, this is the highest form of greatness that they can imagine. 
Right? They, they can't be the Messiah. That, that job's taken. They can't rule as he can rule. Um, but they can at least be his right-hand man and his left-hand man. They can at least be number two and number three in, in the kingdom. And that's kind of peak greatness. And Jesus responds to this idea of them being great. In, in verse 38, first, he says this. You do not know what you are asking. And listen, you're still thinking earthly thoughts. He says, I am thinking of a throne much greater than what you're thinking of. Jesus is after something far greater. Jesus, interestingly, he doesn't get mad at them for desiring to be great. He never says, don't ask to be great. He just challenges them on their definition of greatness. He does it, you know, at the rest of verse 38, asking a question. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Or are you able to do this? And what Jesus is talking about here, he's talking about judgment. Right, the, the metaphor of cup is well known throughout the Old, the Old Testament, and Jesus actually talks about it again in the New Testament. He's talking about a cup of wrath. And Isaiah 51, 17 is one of these instances where he talks about the cup of, of wrath, talking about judgment. And, and baptism here is used figuratively, like it is in other places in the Old Testament. For one of those is Jonah 2, right, where Jonah is, is kind of baptized by the waters of, of judgment. In this, Jesus is alluding to the divine judgment that he's about to bear on himself. And Jesus alludes to this cup again in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? He says, remove this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. But the cup that Jesus is about to drink isn't a fight with Rome. It's a fight against the principalities of darkness. He's about to take divine judgment for the world on himself, the wrath of sin on himself. This is why he says to them, you don't know what you're asking for, right? You can't do what you're asking to do. You don't get it. You can't bear the weight of divine judgment. Only, only one can bear this weight. This cup is for Christ and Christ alone. And foolishly, because they don't understand what Jesus is talking about, they reply this in verse 39. And they said to him, we are able. Right? Yeah, we can drink that cup. We got it. But the cup they think that they're going to drink is the fight ahead once they get to Jerusalem. As they march towards Jerusalem, they're gearing up for a fight against the earthly overlords, right? They aren't thinking about a cross. They're saying, yeah, we can fight. We can, we, can, we can drink that cup with you. We can stand beside you in that battle. We can help you attain that throne. We can be your generals. They don't yet understand all that Jesus is aiming at. And in fact, if you know the whole story, they actually really don't get what Jesus is aiming at. Until after he ascends into heaven, right? Even when Jesus is resurrected and he's hanging out with the disciples uh, in the beginning of Acts. Like, Are we going to Jerusalem now? They ask him. And Jesus has got to be like, you guys, man, I'm going to leave now. And let you guys figure it out, right? They just don't get it. Uh, they don't understand what Jesus is aiming at. And Jesus says, listen to them here. He says, you will drink the cup. You too will be baptized with this baptism, this suffering. It will mark your life, but... You can't drink it until I drink it first and remove the sting of death. Otherwise, this cup would crush you in a moment. And even in your drinking of this cup of suffering, you won't achieve the glory you are seeking. The Father will decide where we sit. It's not up for you to decide. Greatness isn't found in the thrones of man. And then you get this interesting scene, which any parent can imagine here in verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Uh, you know, so for whatever reason, the tent didn't hear, and all of a sudden something happened, and they heard 
And they got mad, right? They were indignant. And imagine this scene. It's like a, a child coming up to the parents and saying, hey, Mick, can you give me my inheritance and my brother's inheritance? You know, that'd be awesome. And then the brother hears it. And like, what are you talking about? You can't have my inheritance. And they start fighting over who's going to be the greatest, like, uh, like children, right? And Jesus hears it. And you, gotta, you, know, you can imagine the sigh. He calls them over in verse 42. And he says, and Jesus called them to them and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. He's basically saying this. You're acting like those who don't know God. You are behaving like the very ones that you seek to overthrow. Don't you see this? You're behaving like the very thing you despise, almost as if to say, even if you took Jerusalem, even if you took Rome, you would actually be no better than they are. Look at yourselves. You're acting like the source of power and authority comes from within you. And so you lord it over others, fighting for it, cheating to attain it, because you think it's the highest form, because it's all that you have. But not so among you, right? You ought to know better. All power and authority comes from God. And I think Jesus is hinting at something that we all know to be true, that you can attain all the glory that this world has to offer and still be left wanting. Your life dreams can be achieved and you can still be left disappointed. You can sit on the greatest thrones that the world has to offer and and still go to bed wanting more. You can buy everything on your Amazon wish list and still come up with more things to add on your Amazon wish list. I mean, you can start your own country and rule as the prime minister, my personal life goal, and still be left wanting. And if, if that is where you think greatness comes from, it will never fulfill you. How is that possible to gain the world and be left wanting. And I think the reason that we find here is surprising. The reason is not that we're actually aiming too high in our quest for greatness, but that we are aiming far too low. The highest form of greatness can't be found on the thrones of man because there is a greater glory than that. And we're to search after it. So if not on the throne, where do we find true greatness? Well, again, surprisingly, we find it here. The second aspect of this is that true greatness is found in the dust. True greatness is found in the dust. In, in true kingdom of God fashion, true greatness is actually found in the, in the last place we would think to find it. And we see this in verse 43 and 44. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be, be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For me personally, I think these are some of those powerful words that Jesus says to his disciples. Words that should reverberate in our souls and in this church. True greatness does not look like the world's. Right? Essentially he's saying, let them fight over power and thrones that, that are temporary. You need to fight for eternal greatness. And this is found in the dust of becoming a servant. Becoming a slave to all. Greatness isn't found in having others bow to your needs, but in bowing to the needs of others in the dust of the earth by putting yourself underneath the authority of others, not having authority over others. What Jesus is saying is profoundly backwards from the way we think naturally. Just like true wealth, greatness isn't achieved by what you receive, but by becoming a servant. 
It isn't found in the riches that can be stored in a bank, but in riches that are stored in service to one another. This is true greatness in God's kingdom. Greatness means service. It means working for the benefits of others. To become a slave of all reverses the hierarchy of the day where a leader would demand of others, now if you want to lead, you must inverse this so you serve the needs of others. This is the mark of a leader. This is the mark of anyone who wants to chase after and follow Jesus. We tend to think of this as weak, though, don't we? Uh, We want the strong leader leading us, not the weak one that has a hard time with words. Let me ask you, as you consider Jesus, is Jesus weak? Of course he isn't. Is it weakness to serve when you are the king of the cosmos? Of course it isn't. Is it weakness to die so that others might live? Of course not. We all know it is the hardest thing possible. This is why it is the mark of strength. If it was easy, that anyone could do. And this is what we're called to. This is also the kind of thing that always sounds good on a Sunday morning when we're sitting here thinking about God's word. Yeah, we need to be servants. Yeah, slaves. This is great. But it doesn't play out that well in real life. It doesn't take long for us to serve ourselves. Like if we had a potluck line downstairs right after this, we'd be fighting to see who would go first. Right? At least our children would be. Uh, It's fights against every natural instinct that you have. In our day-to-day life, we hate this. It demands that you serve your spouse even when they don't deserve it. It it demands that you promote the good of others even when they are working evil against you. It calls you to serve your siblings and honor your parents even when they act against you. It calls you to serve the needy around you even when they actively make it hard for you to do so. Even when they taunt you, even when they mock you, you still serve. Right? Our instinct is to fight for position, right? You don't want to be the person, you don't want to be that person in your mind's servant, right? You don't want to serve them, you don't want to be their slave. They don't deserve it. But if you're searching for true greatness, if you want to follow Jesus, if you trust that Jesus actually is the way to life, you must. You must be a slave to all, even that person that's in your mind that you really don't like and don't want to serve, even them. This is what it means to die to yourself. You know, when I went to to seminary, I was on the the older side of the seminary students. I was over 30 years old. I had a family and four kids. I'd already been a pastor for years, and yet I still had to go to class with people that were a decade younger People that didn't know my resume, they didn't know my name, believe it or not, and they didn't ask. How dare they, right? I mean, believe it or not, I was treated like every other first-year student at seminary. And everything inside of me wanted to scream, right? Do you know who I am? Do you know what I've accomplished on this earth? I am great. You should thank me for being here. In fact, maybe you should pay me to come to school here. And while I'm at it, why don't I teach some of the classes as well, right? And the reality is, this is all of us to some degree. You all know that feeling deep down inside of you. We want greatness. We just don't know how to achieve it. And so we borrow the world's definition, which says greatness is me having authority over others. It's me being esteemed by man. It's me having servants and slaves and getting to the top of whatever heap we're trying to to climb to. And Jesus knows that you struggle with this. He knows that you struggle to actually believe what he's telling us is the greater glory because it doesn't look like it. And which is why he continues in verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even the Son of Man, which every time he talks about the Son of Man, it's referring to the prophetic word in Daniel chapter 7 where he speaks of the Son of Man being the, the eternal throne, the long way to Messiah, the greatest that there ever was, the, the most kingly of all kings. He's speaking of the greatest one. Even that one, even the greatest one. Even the Son of Man so believed that true greatness was found in service that he came not to be served, although he was the only one that deserved to be served, but to serve others. This is the mark of greatness. Even though it doesn't look like it, does it? Greatness is found in the dust. And you see this perfectly in Jesus. Jesus, who was born into the dust, trading thrones for mangers, not because he was weak, but because he is the strong one, right? He is the stronger man. He is the better Adam. He is the God man. And Jesus further proves that this is the truer glory in his work on the cross. Because what does the cross look like? Well, it looks like the feet. He was beaten. He was mocked, right? He was stripped of his garments and he was hung. It looks like he came merely just to die. It looks like he loses the battle that he's fighting. And yet, what is really happening? Jesus is after a greater glory. Greater than the thrones that the world can offer. Right? Anyone can come in and conquer an earthly throne. He just has to have a big enough army. But he is after the principalities and powers of darkness. He's after death itself. He's after crushing the serpent under his heel. That is his true enemy. That's something that you actually can't accomplish with a sword. But it must be accomplished, like he says here, with a ransom. And as he lays down his life for us, one righteous man for the world, dying the death that we deserve, he puts himself under the curse that was brought into the world by the serpent, putting himself under the authority of death so that he could crush it, so he could destroy it, rising again, breaking the, the stronghold of darkness and death, showing his true power and glory and what do we find in the end? We find the victorious Jesus. His work was so powerful that his humiliation on the cross is actually his exaltation. When you behold Jesus on the cross, you behold him in all his glory, in all his victory, the greatest of all, becoming the least of all, that we might be saved, that we might be made great with him. This is his kingdom. This is the greatness that we're supposed to chase after. This is the greatness that we're supposed to pursue, serving others, becoming a slave to all, as Christ did for us. This is the cup we're called to drink if we follow Jesus. Our life will be marked like Jesus' life. The suffering servant king goes before and bids you to come and follow him. Do you want to be great? Do you want glory? Good. You should. You were made for it. You were made for greatness, made for glory. It means you're going to get dirty. It means your life will look backwards to the world. It means you're, you're, you're going to fight against your own fleshly desire to have everyone see you in a certain way. It means that oftentimes your life will look like defeat. But just as Jesus transformed the grave into a symbol of hope, he transforms your defeats into glory. So we're called to trust in it, to walk in it, to follow Jesus in his model of greatness. You know, back when I was struggling with this internal battle in, in seminary, 
I think it was in one of my classes, I came across this verse, and it just, you know how you, when you read the Bible, that verse that you've read a thousand times, just for whatever reason, stands out in that moment? It was one of those moments, it was like I'd read it for the first time. I thought, wow, I probably should memorize and think on this. And again, this mantra for me, the, the idea, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And I, and I thought to myself, listen, I guess if uh, Jesus can do this, I can suffer whatever he puts in front of me. Whatever shame I have in my service, whatever cup he puts before me, I can drink it, not because I am great, but because he who goes before me is. And his model of greatness is what I strive for. Even though it doesn't make sense to me sometimes, I'm called to trust in it because following Jesus is the way to greatness. And to follow Jesus means to become a servant and a slave to all like he was. May we be a people who embrace this truth. May we be a people who learn to serve and become slaves to each other, not for our own acclaim, but for the acclaim of Christ. And, and may this backwards way of the kingdom be a light in the world that is grasping at the air for fleeting glory. Pray with me. Merciful, gracious Father in heaven, when we talk about your heavenly work in us, it feels impossible. The pull to promote ourselves feels so strong. To pursue greatness that we can touch and taste and feel and that is tangible to us seems like the right way. Help us to say no to it. Help us to cling to the truth that you put before us that true greatness is found in you. In you who became a servant of all. May we follow you in this great truth and may we rest in you and on your righteousness alone for our salvation. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.